This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is the podcast about all things Johann Sebastian Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. WTF Bach. Brought to you by Evan Shinners. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. And now, here's WTF Bach. Hey, it's WTF Bach. It is Evan Shinners. You may call me either. I answer to both. The goal of this podcast is to be your guide, to lead your mind through the roads of residence, the courses of counterpoint, the straits of stretto, aspects structural, biographical, or even hypothetical in the music of one J.S. Bach, so as to help you gain more appreciation for it. This is an interview episode. I aim to bring onto this show people who come from various backgrounds, all united around Bach, and in this first season, discuss the art of fugue. My guest today is one of the most accomplished bluegrass players in the world. Chris Thiele, Thiele, T-H-I-L-E, virtuoso mandolinist, and if you don't know what that is, he is going to tell you. He's a truly consummate musician, with a new album coming out on June 4th, by the way. He's a singer and a composer, he's a 2012 MacArthur Fellow, I can't even count how many here, one, two, three, four Grammy Awards. He was even nominated for a Grammy when he was 15 years old. Best known for his work with the bands Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers, he's played with, well, everybody. Yo-Yo Ma, Edgar Meyer, Bela Fleck, Stuart Duncan, Mark O'Connor. He has a duo record with friend of the show Brad Maldow. He even plays on a Dolly Parton record. You should look up videos of the man playing when he was 13 years old. His command of the instrument was already immense at that age. He comes from a line of musicians, as you will hear in our interview. But why, WTF, you ask, am I interviewing a bluegrass musician on a podcast about Bach? Well, if you know anything about Mr. Thiele, you also know that he plays Bach extremely well. He's recorded half of the sonatas and partitas for solo violin, and we eagerly await the second half. I first became aware of Mr. Thiele's existence when I heard him playing the jig of the D minor partita in front of a jam-packed audience at a bluegrass festival. He didn't announce it or anything, he just went on in and played it and the crowd went nuts. And I thought, that's the idea, that's it. With the way that he programs Bach, I feel that he's been one of the more important Bach promoters in our generation. And recently, he played the 13th Contrapuntus, the second of the two mirror fugues in the Art of Fugue, on American public media on the show Live From Here. I wondered what had captured him about that specific fugue from the Art of Fugue, and so I had the privilege of interviewing him. Our interview is all over the map. We talk about baseball and drinking almost as much as we talk about Bach. I even ask Mr. Thiele if he's going to hell, but not out of context, of course. It was a real pleasure interviewing him, and in the days between speaking with him and releasing this episode, one thing in particular, he said, has stuck with me. He spoke about the real difficult parts of Bach's music, and he posed the question, are these parts difficult, or do we just love it so much, and we want to be good for Herr Bach? Well, that question has given me pause these last few days while practicing, and I've begun looking at these difficult passages entirely differently. And I think that that is the sign of a great musician, really, to be able to say something, even off the cuff, and have it stick with another musician, and influence them and allow them to chew on that little tidbit. Maybe that's just the sign of a great mind altogether. One disclaimer. Chris and I had an awful internet connection where we had originally planned on speaking, so he had to move outside to record his end of the audio, so there is some wind in the background and some other noise, but there's some lovely bird calls too, so I beg you to be patient with the audio, and rather than regretting the lack of perfection, imagine Mr. Thiele with some Nashville breeze wafting through his hair 
as he speaks about Bach one fine morning. And now, now, and here on this special interview episode of the WTF Bach Podcast, now, the remark, Chris, 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 Thanks so much for having me, Evan. First things first, you have a new album coming out on June 4th called Lay Songs. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the first properly solo solo record that I've made. I've made solo records before, but have have either overdubbed myself ad nauseum or had actual collaborators you know, who just weren't being properly credited for their hard and skillful work. Or the, there, there was one, a, a Bach record, um, that, that was truly solo, but... When you're playing Bach, I mean, it feels it feels like a duet, really. You're playing you're playing the man's music, and uh, and so that 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 actually does feel in a cheeky way like a duet record, as opposed to to this where I'm I'm really offering up things of 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 my own writ. I'm also the first the first properly solo record with singing, and and it was an opportunity for me to to explore. Uh, the the textural possibilities are just mandolin and voice, but I also felt like I needed a a unifying sort of area of of thought and expression to to give the thing meaning. Other than you know, I I I literally can't make a record with anyone else right now because of coronavirus. Uh, you know, that's that's like a perfectly fine reason to make a solo record right right at this moment. But hopefully, it won't be a great reason to make a solo record for very long. And um, and so I started thinking about, uh, as I am wont to do, the, the, the sort of good and bad of organized religion as it pertains to how I conduct my, my communal activity. Like I, I, so I, I was raised with a ton of religion and, uh, and, and have completely drifted away from it, but it still impacts the way that I relate to the people around me and the, and the world around me. And I see the the religious impulse percolating in in all in all facets of of community, whether 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 they touch actual organized religion or or not. So so this was a this was a fun opportunity to use a bunch of that imagery, lyrical religious imagery, but in the service of of, of a very sort of secular line of thinking. And then I I, I enjoyed really enjoyed how the the forced solitude of making a solo record in in the pandemic mimicked the way that that I felt as an adolescent growing up in church and kind of surrounded by people who all seemed very very unified in the contemplation of god uh, a god that I was actively questioning you know against my own you kind of like against every instinct in my body. It's like I wanted to be like the I wanted to be like these people, and they they seemed they seemed so sure of themselves. And I was you know is this God does this does this is this real? Does this does this thing exist? And am I going to hell for doubting it? And and also for noticing that the girl two pews over is really pretty. You know just just that 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 actually. Um, you f- I felt so alone in the middle of a church service that um, it felt appropriate to make a record about all this stuff by myself. So what is your conclusion? Are you going to hell? I p- probably, probably. Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I think, I don't know. I, well, I, th- I, think, I think the conclusion for me is that 
you know, living in a in a in a self-serving way is plenty hell in and of itself. So so how to go about avoiding that in this very self-oriented society of ours? How do we go about um, acquiring a bit of selflessness? I've never I've never been much for music that draws conclusions. I, I, you know, I feel like music in general is better at asking questions than it is at answering them. It's an interesting idea, this thought of having to throw yourself onto something bigger, despite what your personal belief might be. And this is definitely tied into Bach, you know. Oh my God, all music is made for the glory of God. Right, you know, per Pariah, growing up in this uh, Sephardic Jewish household, he was the one that said in order to truly play Bach, you have to become a Christian. Is, the, is there some of that in bluegrass music too because of the same Christian tradition? Oh, wow. Absol yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, you're not going to, yeah, you're, you're not going to achieve, you know, a real, a real working knowledge of that music without, without really diving into the extensive gospel repertoire. I mean, you know, the whole, Bluegrass to me is all about bluegrass festivals. And on Sunday morning, everyone does all their gospel material. That's like a tradition. And coming up in the community, you've got to have it. Like a festival, um, I mean, I suppose you don't, you don't have to. You could just say, hey, we don't have any gospel material. But then, but then the promoter's just going to be like, what? When Bill Monroe would say, uh, oh, no, it's time for a semi-sacred number. And the Saturday night, Sunday morning aspect of, of bluegrass music is so important. You know, the kind of that, that however pious that Sunday morning material may be, it's not going to prevent you from absolutely burning it down six days later. <laughs> what happens on Saturday nights? Oh, I mean, Saturday night is, of bluegrass music, there's, there's, you know, I mean, topically speaking, cheating songs and drinking songs and murdering songs. Uh, that you know, that's the, I think there's just as much of that activity in the canon as there is spiritual activity, and so I think you know even even early in my life there was a dim awareness of the the inherent hypocrisy in any human superiority, any sense of human su superiority. There are plenty of Lord forgive me for for my sin songs but there's also a ton of like lord forgive you you're on the you're uh, you know you're 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 not on the right track I mean, there's there's so much of that ask for forgiveness sinner uh and he will hear your call hallelujah you know and then and then and then again just burning it down the next saturday night at the bluegrass festival this is a question i want to ask everyone who comes on the show if you had to explain the artifugue to a child what would you say what would I say? Do you know what's funny is I, 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 there was a friend of my little boy came over and they saw that I have my wife. I mean, I think early in our relationship bought me a little Bach action figure and, uh, and they saw this, this, this little kid, uh, saw the action figure like perched on a, I don't know, perched on a shelf somewhere. Who's that in that, in that sort of accusatory <laughs> childlike way. And I, and I went, well, that's this, that's this guy. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. What did he do? Um, you know, and I just I start launching into it. Tell us a story about that guy. Because they just they, they think it's a superhero. And he is. And so I started, I started getting into it. Well, in my opinion, is the greatest musician who ever lived. Why? Well, uh, you know, he just he had such control over the the materials. 
of music. What? What are you, you know, materials of music? What are you talking about? I'm going, well, uh, I mean, I would guess I would start with counterpoint. Counterpoint? Like a line, a line that, that, that goes against another line and they are complementary and yet independent. And, you know, the, these kids are just glazing over. And so then I switched to the story about him fighting the bassoonist, you know, absolutely just actually fighting in the street with this bassoonist over a poor, a poor performance. I get him back. And I did actually bring up the art of the fugue as evidence, as evidence of Bach's... Of his sonic superpowers. His superpowers, his... Just how far he was willing to go to achieve, you know, not... I don't even think mastery in his head to, to just achieve a greater level of musical understanding. You know, and I, I mean, I think that the art of the fugue kind of... I hold that up as maybe the greatest example of musical exploration. Uh, you know, just that... That, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the well-tempered clavier also feels... The well-tempered clavier, I think, is also great evidence of that kind of activity, but there's something so yearning, so searching. This is not a word that maybe we, we commonly associate with Bach, but I think there's, in the music, there's humility to me. There's, there's actual... There's like the, the, the spirit of the student in the art of the fugue in a way that really, that really intrigues me. Just like the, the whole, the premise of it, I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to manipulate it in all the ways that I can think of at this point in my musical life. And I love that it seems, particularly in the art of the fugue, like he's doing it for himself. And I think there's, there's, there's a, I, mean, I suppose there's a way in which that seems like the epitome of self-absorbed musical activity. And there's a way in which it seems like the least self-absorbed thing you could possibly do. I think the instinct that most of us musicians have to find a thing and show it to someone as quickly as possible to, you know, to reap a little attention from the fruits of our labors. I think about that a lot while playing the solo violin music. The extent to which he meant it to be performed. You know, how, theoret how theoretical was any performance to him, you know, of, of, of that music. And I mean, I think with the Art of the Fugue, even perhaps more theoretical. Just the idea that, that he was going to chase this, uh, he was going to chase perfect understanding of, of counterpoint. I don't think he pretends that that's possible, just that it's a worthy endeavor. Chasing something not necessarily chasing it to a completion. And it reminds me of the canons on the back of the Goldberg Variations where he writes the 14 canons. Yeah, yes. And he writes at the end of these 14 canons, etc. I love that etc. Wow. It's like, you can, you can go on if, if, you, if you need more than 14 of these ideas stemming from this one bass line. Oh, I, I, God, it, I just adore, I adore the man. As do we all. I know you've recorded the 13th Contrapuntus with Yo-Yo Ma and Edgar Meyer. Uh, I've seen you play it on public radio. Do you play the rest of the Art of the Fugue, or is this 13th Contrapuntus close to your heart? Oh, I mean, it's, it's so... My, my personal Bach guru is Edgar Meyer, and I've played 
I've played a few. God, what else? Um, I was going to ask you if you if you if you played that eighth one because it's also in three voices. So, so yeah. you played this with 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 whom? Uh, again, with with Edgar and and Yo Yo. Yeah, it's not on the record though, right? No, it's not. Yeah, we recorded it and then didn't actually include it on the record, mainly because Edgar had already recorded it with Bela Fleck and Mike Marshall. That's a beautiful, I, I strongly encourage you to check that out. I, I love, I do love playing Bach with a plectrum in the company of bowed musicians, just because I think the, you know, the disparate texture, you know, illuminates the, again, the, that, that dance between just the complementary independence of those, of those lines. And, and when you're playing them on, on, on different, like drastically different instruments, like a cello and a mandolin. Um, you know the 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 separate the separate lives of those of those lines comes into clearer focus. Well, it sounds like you're describing a continuo playing. You know, because there's the the bowed instrument, of course, and then there's the the plucked instrument. Yep, and then harpsichord. I love that sound. I, I yeah. So it, so it's just it's just well, it's just a joy. It's a joy to get to play it. Um, but those, yeah, those are, those are really the only things I've played. There was a, there's a four voice, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to forget the, uh, I'm going to forget the number. Is it 10? Is 10 in a four voice? 10. That's 10. Everything is four voice except for the ones that you just mentioned. Oh, okay. Well, there you have it. I think it's 10 then, um, that I played with, also with Bela and, so Edgar, Bela and Mike and Mike Marshall at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival, uh, actually early Sunday morning. Um, so they okay. they they uh, they let they let an, 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 uh, a morning of only Bach pass as a gospel set, which I think was appropriate. That's that's appropriate. Tell us about this one number on that trio record, the Erbarm dich mein Herrgott. was so happy to see that on the record but i couldn't figure it out are you playing guitar oh on on air, uh no that's uh and and just because i i'm never looking at the titles of these things hum me a few bars that's the one that begins in f sharp minor that um oh indeed oh my god that piece just blew my mind anew i i felt like i had listened to the width and breadth of what what our man had been up to, and then all of a sudden he like he pulls out this Radiohead shit on us. That's like, I, I mean, also also just how how sneaky where that piece actually is headed. It, I mean, he's he's. I, I mean, I, I feel like the first ten seconds there's an entire world in the first ten seconds of that of that piece, and then he just keeps going. Uh, yeah, I'm playing guitar on it, um, and that's another that's another Edgar Meyer find. I've tried to to get Edgar even remotely interested in Radiohead, 
on multiple occasions. And he, he just, uh, at this point, I think it's just fun for him to keep crushing my spirit uh, in re, just trying to attempt him that there's any there there. Or trying, trying to attempt to convince him that there's any there there. And, and, um, and so then he said, I, I also felt that it was a, a, a subtle admission to that he does find some value in Radiohead when he sent this as a possible, as a possible uh, piece for us to play with Yo-Yo. So let's talk about the, the history of the mandolin in classical music because we've got, you know, the famous scene in Don Giovanni. You have the original compositions by Beethoven. You have the concertos for plucked instruments by Vivaldi. Here you have Vivaldi, this great violinist who's writing concertos for the mandolin with a similar technique to the violin music. So is there already a, a history of playing violin music on mandolin and vice versa? Is there a tradition before you? Um, well, certainly, certainly in the vernacular music that I grew up with, God, 90% of the language in bluegrass music, no, that's, that's probably high, maybe 75% of the, of the language of bluegrass music comes from British Isles fiddle tune music. And so everyone grows up learning all of those tunes and then playing them around the campfire, you know, drunk off their gourds on Saturday night before the gospel set on Sunday morning. You know, you gotta, you gotta do something to, to, uh, you know, necessitate your pleas for forgiveness the next morning. Right. And, and so even as a little kid, now I was not drunk off my gourd as a, as a little kid, but I was, you know, playing, playing fiddle tunes with people who were, and so you learn, you learn all those tunes. And so for me, when I was exposed to Bach, People were trying for a little while, but I was so obsessed with, with, um, with bluegrass and and that. And then then I kind of got started getting into jazz because of Bela, really, because of Bela Fleck. So then I kind of opened up the the world view to include, to include jazz, and then ran into Edgar Meyer and heard. I, I mean, you know, honestly, it was Contrapuntist Eight that that uh, Edgar's recording with. Bela and Mike on on his record Uncommon Ritual was probably a first mover for me and Bach. Right around that same time, both my grandmas on my mother's side, my my the, the, there was divorce involved, and both both of my grandmas, my 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 biological grandma, my step grandma, were both are both very good pianists despite the fact that we were living in different musical worlds, they were realizing right about that point, I think, that, that I might have some, that I might have some substantial musical aptitude. Um, and so even, even though maybe what I was playing sounded like what, hillbilly music. What, what age are we talking about here? This, I think this is, they became, I think they were always sort of, I think they were impressed with me before before 13 or 14, but I think it was around then that they, they started hearing the kind of facility that, that made more sense to them. Just in like me playing, you know, rolling in my sweet baby's arms, you know, chopping on the mantle, rolling in my, you know, it's, it's cute. He can play really fast, but, but um, my goodness is that simple primitive music. <laughs> you know, I think to my grandmothers at that time, that would have been, you know, the same as if I was able to, oh, I don't know, just sort of like pound a pop song on, on a piano. Like that wouldn't necessarily have told them that I was a musical child. And then, and so I think it took them a, a while to, to see that there was, there was some real aptitude there. And then they started sending me Bach. And I, I remember getting, getting a, um, 
the Bach double from my from my grandma Celia, who lived in Wyoming. She sent me a, a, like a music minus one of the of the Bach double. And and so that was that was the first time I tried to play Bach violin music on the mandolin. Oh wait, you know what? That's not totally true. There was this bluegrass fiddler, Richard Green, who had me playing in his band when I was 10. And he wanted to work up a version of the third movement of like, a, I mean, a, just a really countrified version of the third movement of the Bach E major violin concerto. And so he, he I, I had to learn it. Uh, and I learned it by ear, you know, at 10. And he was like, no, no, you're missing some stuff. And so then I had to, he, uh, my mom sat me down with a part. I, I forget where she even got a part. I think I tabbed it out, like kind of note by note. So this is E, that's this one. That's the second fret on the D string. You know, I'm, and I'm, so I'm thinking of it that way. Wow. So there was a little moment there, but it had, I, I had no interest in it. It was just something I had to do because this guy wanted me to do it in his band. So it was my own love of Bach was, was kindled by my, my, grand, my grandmother's on my mom's side. And it was... So grandma sent me that. She sent me Yo-Yo's recording of the cello suites. She sent me an old Los Angeles chamber orchestra recording of the Brandenburg concertos. Um, I remember particularly going nuts for the third movement of the fifth Brandenburg concerto. which that kind of sounded like fiddle tune music to me. Um, and then my step-grandmother, we were visiting. Uh, for some reason, she sat me down with Gould's second recording of the Goldberg Variations. I think Gould's, you know, the, 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 the sort of metronomic approach that Gould takes in that recording. I mean, think about the way he plays that first variation. So she plays, you know, she plays me the the opening theme and I'm going, okay, okay, fine, fine. And then he kicks into that first variation and it's so, I mean, almost militant in a way that struck a major chord for me as a bluegrass player where, I mean, you know, this like, it's right here and it has been right here your whole life. You know, that, that, that's, and, and actually bluegrass music sort of pretends to be that, but it's actually rushing all the, it's, you know, it's, I think if you don't, if you don't end at least five BPM up from where you started, then, then you, then you have been out of the pocket, my friend, um, which I didn't realize until much later. Gould's rhythmic approach on that second recording to the Goldbergs kind of blew the doors off for me and made me realize, no, this is for you too. It was up, up to that point. I had always felt like I was on, I was on quicksand rhythmically uh, when I would when I would try to engage with classical music and just go like, I I just I can't move to it. I don't know what to do. I can't move to it. Uh, and I could move to Gould. And now you know, of course, there's there are infinite ways to skin the rhythmic cat. 
And but at that point, I needed something that was, I mean, a sledgehammer that where the where the yeah, where the pulse was being was being hammered into your skull. And so that that Gould, you know, the, the first variation was Gould's performance of the first variation was was like that was the dynamite I needed to to uh, to stick under this massive wall I had built between myself and and class and classical music. It's funny that you talk about ending five BPMs faster with bluegrass music because actually you've been described as a musician whose inner metronome never breaks. Do you? And I want to talk about practice. Actually, do you practice with a metronome? I I love practicing with a metronome, but kind of just to know just to know what quote unquote perfect is, but not to you know not not with a metronomic sense of timing being the goal, but rather just just to to be able to do that, you know, to, to just kind of know where it is and be able to, I, I imagine rhythm as I, I see like a grid in my head and there's like these little, uh, how to, how to explain what I'm seeing. It's like when I first saw a logic session, you know, like a, like a, that, that program logic, when I first saw a logic session, I was like, that's almost like what I see in my head when I'm hearing people play and just imagining the placement as these little blocks on this grid. And it helps me figure out what might be the most, what might be the most beautiful placement that I could contribute. Like I, I, just, I, I see these little blocks laid out on a grid as music is happening in, in real time. And you can predict kind of the next, so the next beat is gonna be another frame of this grid and and you can make predictive placement decisions based on the last snapshot that you've collected because of course you can't play you can't place to what you're hearing it's too late already it's like if the quarterback threw threw the football to where the receiver was or like yeah if, if the quarterback throws the ball to where he sees the receiver at that moment there's no hope of a completion and and so we as musicians when we're playing with other people that's what we're doing we're 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 listening to what's there, but it's only useful to us in terms of what's coming. So in, in, in terms of how it's going to predict what's about to happen, and then we can place accordingly. I'm always interested in the first notes that musicians play when they pick up the instrument the first time in the day. So can you take us through maybe your, your morning? You're drinking coffee right now. Is this an everyday thing? Tell us about the morning. The morning, I probably, yeah. So when I pick up, yeah, there's, so there's coffee, and there's sort of a, like a, a fearful assessment of what I'm supposed to get done, you know, as opposed to what, what, what I would love to do, which is probably left, left to my own devices. I'm just sort of puttering, puttering around musically, you know, get the, often with the mandolin in my hands, as much as I would love to you know, just sort of live in like a quiet thinking musical wonderland. I do think a little more clearly with the mandolin in my hand. It's just like a, some conductor's, want a baton and some don't. Uh, and for me, yeah, the mandolin, the mandolin helps. I think I've gotten to the point where, where I can refrain from letting it direct my thoughts. Um, and instead I can, you know, <clears throat> my thoughts can direct it. But, but I mean, for the longest time, it was, it was absolutely, I was absolutely like an instrument driven musical thinker. I'd like to think it's, it's gotten a little freer than that. But, um, when, when did you make that switch from maybe you from the mandolin driving you to the other way around. It was a, it was I mean it was certainly a thing that Edgar was talking about as an ideal 
And then the more I started fanboying composers, the more I would read in in their writings. You know, it's better to compose off the piano. Like make like make sure you're make sure you're composing enough away from the instrument. And when I started doing that, I realized the extent to which I was confining myself thinking exclusively on the instrument, especially as esoteric an instrument as the mandolin. The piano or the key, you know, just keyboard in general is so much purer in terms of yeah, just just yeah, it just seems like there's less between you and music if you're a pianist, which I I, I envy. I envy. So is tuning is tuning the first thing you do when you when you pick up the mandolin? No, almost always just a little bit in D major. <laughs> almost always a little bit in D major. Almost always, it's the smack in the middle of the instrument. It's you know, so it's like your open strings go G D A E, just like a violin, um, and so. D and A are right smack in the middle of the instrument. And so I, I feel like almost always, I bet you almost always, I hit a G chord that is functioning as a four in my mind. And then, and then I just end up in D. And that lets me know where the axe is. Then I start tuning. It's a centering, it's, it's a calibration device. And it's almost always, always something sort of in a, in a vaguely, you know, British, British Isles, uh, fiddle tune language. It's just uh, that's true north for me, and so I just hit the calibration device and then and then get to work. So, assuming that there's someone listening who doesn't know what a mandolin is, what is this? Right. What is this thing we're talking about? Oh, it's a toy. It's a little toy instrument um, that that is tuned the same as a, a violin. Has it's very quiet. Um, you know. Plucking, plucking a string, as any violinist knows, is not the best way to get sound out of these wooden boxes of ours. They're, they're, they're typically in uh, eight strings and four courses, G, D, A, E. Um, the G is the G below middle C, and that's as low as it's going to get. They, they're fretted, and then when you get to the, to the extreme high end of the, of the range, there's even less sustain. And they're fairly unwieldy up there, and not that it not that it can't be navigated, but it's it, but it just gets it gets even even more toy like up there. I think it's I I, I don't know about you. I think I do I think it's productive to dwell on an instrument's deficiencies um, to to remind yourself not to not to live for an instrument, but rather to live for live for music and know that I don't particularly love my speaking voice either but um but uh you know it'll get it'll get the job done well what does it do having two strings per note does it make it twice as loud what what, what does this do why are there two strings per note are they the same density what's going on there right i i mean i think it's just it increases the harmonic complexity of of any you know of any single note that there's that you know you're never obviously you're never going to get them in perfect, perfect unison, and so it just—it just—it's just a way to to liven up the harmonic series. It, if you are familiar with the mandolin, uh, you know you might be thinking of that kind of uh, you know, sort of gondola, uh, you know that the, the, the tremolo thing. That's very easy on a mandolin because of that double string. You know, as you go like when when a when your pick stroke goes through the string, that means you're you're closer. You're going to be closer to the upstroke. So if you you know a downstroke, if you had to go all the way back to the to that first string, yeah, it's just it's just the 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 amount 
your wrist doesn't want to make quite as small of a motion. So if you only had the one string there as a plucked instrument player, imagine, okay, imagine your wrist dropping a certain amount that's natural. If, when, then when you raise it up, that, that same amount, if you only have one string, there's just more distance before you're gonna hit that string. Whereas if there's two there, you drop your wrist a natural amount, your pick is, is, is resting just below that bottom string. And so you're gonna hit it sooner when you then move your wrist up. And so that's, so it's easy, arguably it's, you know, maybe it's just a little faster. Uh, in tuning these unisons, you know, uh, a lot of players don't get to tune unisons. And in, in my limited tuning experience, I've always felt that actually tuning unisons is kind of the most profound tuning experience. Do you agree or do you think that tuning unisons gives maybe your ear something that the ear of someone who doesn't tune unisons doesn't have? Oh, maybe. I God, I hadn't thought of that. I, and I'm also, I, by the way, I'm the, I'm the son of a piano technician. Okay. Talk about tuning unisons. So I heard a lot of that happening uh, even before I became a mandolin player. I hadn't thought about that. I love it. I mean, it's, it, there is a, a unique satisfaction derived from getting that thing zinging, you know, getting it right in as close as as you possibly can, as close as the ear uh, allows. Like a, like, a, like a satisfaction akin to like, you know, popping bubble wrap or, um, or like squishing packing peanuts or, uh, you know, I don't know. There's like, it is, it is very, uh, <laughs> there's something very, very satisfying about it. Uh, you know, Bach's music always seems to be some of the hardest to execute, no matter what instrument you're playing it on. Is that is that true on mandolin? Sure, sure. Yeah, there's... Oh, God, I mean, I'm thinking right now about getting the C major fugue up and running, um, you know, for like the third time, still having never performed it. Um, you know, just kind of like, I keep getting it, getting it close to the place where I could imagine performing it, and then some other big project comes up and I, you know, I let it, I let it kind of accumulate dust in the corner and then have to, have to trot it back out, dust it off. Uh, I'm far more scared of that piece than I am like the Chacon, for instance. Yeah, there's nothing more demanding, I, but I think it's more, I, isn't it more, I feel like it's more mental than physical, actually. The, with, with, the C major? With Bach, well, just with Bach in general, that there's something relentless about the musical thought and because of his command of his materials, you know, the, 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 the heart and soul being in those, in his manipulation of common, his manipulation of his material. Like if you're just, if you, if you let your guard down for a split second, you'll shoot yourself into a, a, a you know, a part of the piece that's six minutes away from where you are right now. And, um, and so I, I think it just, it demands, it demands your full presence in the moment. You, you, you have to be so firmly committed to the, to the moment that you're right inside of, and you have, to be, you have to be fully committed and present in the sum of all of those moments. That's, that's why I find it to be among the, the most difficult to, to, to... But isn't it also, though, that we love it so much? We love it so much that we, 
that we get a little bit worked up every time we're going to do it. And, and we just want to do right by the master. With Bach, I am always imagining that he's out there listening some somehow. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, I have these moments in almost every piece, and you probably have the same moments. I don't exactly know the voicing in the C major fugue, but it's the one that goes... And then it's like, it's this amazing moment that Cadence is in E minor, and I think it's right before maybe the big... And, and yes. you know, I get I get so nervous every time that I, I psych myself out, like every time, and I, I have those moments in. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, no, absolutely, and you just want it, you want it to be good for our boy, you know, and 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 that and that so many people have played it before us. There's a lot of examples yeah. of of it being done so well, and you know, I think we all, any good musician has imposters, like has imposter syndrome or complex or whatever it is. Like, do I deserve to be interacting with this music? And, you know, is my next performance of it going to finally hit people to the fraud that I am, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's an air of um, humility in front of this man and in front of this tradition, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna get uh, I'm gonna get personal if you don't mind, just for the for the Please. end of the interview here. Can we talk about the cover of your first album leading off? There's this boy, I have a really hard time believing is you, and then there's a is it a baseball diamond on the cover? And, yeah, oh yeah. And is this because your great 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 uncle was a 19th century baseball hall of famer? What's what's up? Unbelievable that you know that. Yeah, yes, I was a huge, am a huge baseball fan. And, and indeed, exactly four greats uh, of an uncle of mine played for the, uh, for the Philadelphia Athletics and the Detroit Wolverines in the late 1800s and, and then uh, came out of retirement in the very early 1900s to, to play alongside Ty Cobb, actually. Um, but he, he's in the Hall of Fame. He, he was a member of the, uh, of the only all 400 hitting outfield in 1896. Dude, dude has a lifetime, oh God, I think 331 average, if memory serves. He still holds the record for career RBIs per game. Uh, percentage he at at point nine two three one percentage point higher than Lou Gehrig, and and for the long for the longest time held the single season RBI mark at at uh, one hundred and sixty six or one hundred sixty five, and then Hack Wilson eventually broke it with like one hundred and ninety, which I think still stands. But uh, but yeah, he was a great a great ball player and. I, I, my grandpa on my dad's side, that's actually on my mom's side, where all the Bach-loving uh, pianists are, uh, also this, this random baseball player. But then on my dad's side, my grandpa is a great ball player and was recruited heavily out of high school. His parents didn't let him go into the minors out of high school. They made him finish college first, but then he was, he was recruited again out of college, uh, made it to the Dodgers AAA farm team before he, but he was, a, he was an All-American in college as well. And, but made it made it to the Dodgers AAA team before he decided that he was going to go into speech pathology. But baseball baseball is a big part of the of the family. Well, I have a uh, a book to recommend to you by Russell Sherman, the pianist um, who teaches at New England Conservatory or Todd. I don't know if he's still teaching, but it's a book called Piano Pieces, and it's reflections on what it is to be a musician and how to play piano. And at least half of these small paragraphs which are like poetic musings, are baseball and music 
analogies. What? Okay, I need this. How many suits do you own, Chris Thiele? Suits? Ooh, uh, less. <clears throat> less now. Um, less now. In the last year, my wife made me throw out a bunch of the ones that I, that I, you know, haven't worn in five years or more, or had been worn on stage too many times to, to be in a closet with other garments. Um, okay. uh, if you know what I mean. There's just, you know, we, uh, we sweat. We sweat those performances, don't we? You know, when we're, when we're imagining <clears throat> Bach listening to us, uh, sometimes that manifests itself in an extra degree of sweat. It renders a garment unwearable. Um, but, you know, I, but I, don't, I, I, I have such a hard time throwing these, these things away and feel like, oh, maybe there's some dry cleaner out there that's going to that's gonna make it okay, but there never is. Um, so I just threw away a bunch. I probably, at this point... Yeah, we're probably way down, six, seven, something like that. Okay. I was not expecting a single digit. No, it, it, it wouldn't have been for many years. I also move around a lot uh, on stage, kind of by accident. And that, that is also, in addition to Bach-based anxiety, uh, is, is hard on suits. Bach-based anxiety, yeah, I think that's a whole... So I wonder if he did ever, you know? You wonder what? I wonder if he ever did. If he had Bach-based anxiety? Well, yeah, he was part of the tradition. He apparently was, was sitting on his uncle's lap as his uncle was improvising on the organ in fluent five-part harmony. So I assume there's, you know, even within the Bachs. He would, have been, he would have been sometimes holding himself up and finding himself unworthy. Finish the quote. What an amazing moment. What an amazing... What an amazing, amazing donut. <laughs> How do you know about that? <laughs> You're Chris Thiele. We have to know these things. <laughs> Amazing. So okay, good. So I want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about drinking. Actually, ah, uh, a favorite pastime of mine. Can you tell us about pure pot still plumber and wetter burn bottled at navy strength? <sighs> wow, that sounds delicious right now. Are we talking, like, is that what Smith & Cross is? That's the one. All right. Bam. Oh, it's such a, and it makes such a good Negroni. Have you done that? Okay, no, I haven't done that. And that's, that's uh, one thing we have in common is that's definitely one of my favorite cocktails. So you make Negronis with this Jamaican rum? With Smith & Cross instead of, instead of gin. Uh, and, and particularly with Smith & Cross. Although I, I have a bartending hero who, who makes... Uh, a rum Negroni with Ray and Nephew overproof rum, and it, it's delicious. And occasionally I'll I'll mess around using like an ounce of an aged Jamaican rum, like like uh, maybe Appleton Twelve, and so that being a half ounce, and then the other half ounce coming from like a like a Martinique uh, rum agricole could be could be really that that also makes a fun to but right now i'm just i'm obsessed with just just straight up replacing the gin with an ounce of smith and cross do you bottle your own negronis i don't i should i should because one of my favorite negronis in new york at marta you know just what neighborhood it's just south of midtown at marta they do a bottle condition negroni that i think is one of the finest in the city and i do feel like these bottle aged or barrel-aged cocktails only make sense if you're using an unaged spirit. And so a Negroni, like a, a traditional gin-based Negroni, makes sense to bottle age, as opposed to a Manhattan where you're using, where the base spirit is already aged. Like you're not, you're not gonna 
taste like a couple months of barrel age in a in a drink that is predominantly aged seven years already, you know? But I do I do actually really love um a you know a, a bottle or barrel aged Negroni. I have not tried that with with Smith and Cross. Smith and Cross is aged, but not much, right? It's like it's probably probably in the three year zone. Maybe it's introducing a certain it, it's it's like a bottle aged Negroni in a way because of that extra age that Smith and Cross has, as opposed to Plymouth Gin being you know being in its infancy. A few questions from Instagram. The first is from Kevin, who asks. Is the first song on the Goat Rodeo Sessions named after Sam Ross's bar? And if so, do the other members know this? Yes, and yes. Uh, it, is, it is absolutely named after Attaboy at 134 Eldridge Street, where I feel like I came of age. Um, okay. it, that, that, that bar, before it was Attaboy, uh, was called Milk and Honey, just one of the greatest cocktail bars in the history of cocktail bars. And so as they were, I, uh, the, the goats and I wrote that song as the transition from Milk and Honey at 134 to Attaboy was in process. And they told me they'd come up for that name and I loved it. And, and I, uh, so I'm, I'm buddies with Sam and, and Mickey. And they told, they told me, I think we finally have the name, Attaboy, what do you think? It's like, love it. And then, and then when the goats and I wrote this thing that was, that was sort of vaguely Irish sounding and Mickey, AKA Michael McElroy, who's partners with Sam Ross in Attaboy, he's Irish. And so it just, it just, I, I pitched it. We're always struggling to name those goat rodeo songs. Bethany asks certain songs of yours, for example, familiarity, you are, they seem as if the forms are made with your intuition rather than based on a set form. Is that inspired at all by the wandering nature of Bach's preludes? Totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. I love the improvisatory aspects of, of the preludes. Um, but obviously, he's dotting his I's and crossing his T's formally as well. You know, it's, it, it isn't slipshot in any way. But there is that you do feel like you're getting to hear him riff and just follow his nose you know I, I feel like i feel like we get to hear him follow his nose in 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 the preludes and i love doing that i i think that i you know i come from a music that's very where the creative process is almost exclusively improvisatory and so even the pre, preludes are comparatively very formally rig, rigorous but like, I mean, I've got something like the E major prelude is a huge compositional influence on me. Like, so the way he, the way he teases out that theme, the way he starts, I mean, God, that the opening theme, he doesn't, he never goes back to it. Yeah. I've always been struck that those are the only eighth notes in the composition are, and then, yeah. and then it's a composition of, uh, well, and then you have the cadence. Yeah. At the, yeah, exactly. Exactly. At the very end. And, and other, other than that, he's not going to stop for nothing. It's the same. It's the same. Virtually the same in the in the uh, the D minor giga. Um, that the only the only eighth notes in that are also at the at the top of each half. 
and and otherwise it never 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 stops. Yeah, no, that absolutely it's well well observed. The guru asks, "Where's volume two at?" <laughs> it's it's in the practice room, baby. Yeah, yeah. That that C major fugue is a is is one of the uh, that you know. Round three of dusting that thing off and, and trying to get it into performable shape is 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 part of volume two slowly, slowly manifesting. And and I want to add on to that question by asking: do, do you plan on recording the sonatas for violin and harpsichord? I God, I would love. There's there's a lot of them that would make a ton of sense. They wouldn't. I I don't necessarily think that they would make. I gotta I gotta get in there with the slow movements and see if there's a way to make that really work. It depends on what we do with the keyboard parts. So I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Volume two first, that, and, then, and then perhaps, then perhaps. What would you do, I'm just, just because you made me think about this, you have the, the, the beginning, that B minor, and then the first entrance of the violin part is this long sustained F sharp. How would you do that? What would you would you tremolo? Would you trill? Would you just play it? Ah, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that gives me pause. Right. And thankfully, there are there are not moments like that in the solo violin music. There are plenty of moments where I wish I had more sustain, but not something like that. Uh, and tremolo, just I. So I played. I've played the second movement of the Bach double with with orchestra a couple times. Uh, and obviously a great violinist. And so that's, you know, when you're talking about da, 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 da. That's already a bit harrowing on the mandolin. And like, I don't want to sit there and again, gondolify it. You know, um, that, that's just going to make everyone want to die. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I would trill. I, like when I've read something like that, I just, I just play it and, there it and it vanishes and we have to hear it in our inner ear. And, and like how audibly... Can you intend a note like that on, <laughs> on, on a mandolin? It's kind of the, the question, like how audible can you make your intentions for that note as opposed to the reality of that note? Or I would maybe improvise, you know, embellish. Uh-huh. That, that would be the, those would be the only two viable options to me. Could I improvise something, you know, that didn't seem out of character, that didn't seem self-indulgent in any way? I, I, I mean, my quick hypothesis is no. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure having you here. Thanks for being with us. And Oh my God, the pleasure's all mine, Evan. Thank you so much. What a joy. Can you answer these last uh, two questions? What is the one book you've read more than any other? And if you were recommending a book, is it the same one? That is interesting. Absolutely. I, if I was only recommending one book, though, I don't know. Um, but as far as the book that I've read more than any other, it's, it is 
uh, it is absolutely the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, and, uh, I, and I recommend it wholeheartedly, not that any of you haven't read it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, would it, but would it be the thing, like if, if someone hadn't read it, would I recommend? Yeah, I probably would. I don't think anything has done more for my imagination. And I don't think anything has done more for me than my imagination. There's a sister question, too, with it. Uh, the, the fiddle tune you've played the most, and if you had to recommend someone to learn a fiddle tune, would it, would it be the same one? Probably so. Probably so. St. Anne's real. St. Anne's. It's, it's just so perfect. It's just a little morsel, little petty four of musical perfection. I, I smile even just thinking about it. This, the B part is so so yearningly beautiful. I, I, I really, I never get bored of St. Anne's. I play it to the day I die. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for yours. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, we finally did this. Uh, can't wait till the next one. Count me in, whatever you got. You're in. All right, mighty fine. Mighty fine, said the man. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Eddie Barbash. Thank you to Armand Hirsch. And thank you to Sarah Jaros for helping organize this interview. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You are listening to the WTF Bach Podcast. Do you want a specific piece of Bach analyzed by Evan? You can write to us. Do you want to partner with us? Write us at the WTF Bach Podcast. Help keep this podcast alive. Support us. Send us a donation on Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at WTF You can support Evan at patreon.com slash WTF Your support is tax deductible. Evan Shinners is the founder of New Call Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit which performs classical music and atypical venues. <laughs> 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 <laughs>